0: This week, a new definition of sepsis. And does happiness affect mortality? Hello, and welcome to the Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, Rena Patani, who is an internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Good. How are you? Really, really well. Uh, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we're talking about two uh, completely unrelated topics today. Um, you're going to talk about sepsis, and we're going to do our best not to get lost in the weeds of a bunch of new definitions. That's right. And then we're going to talk about happiness and mortality. And... Uh, sort of some broad epidemiologic concepts. Great. Okay, so Rena, kick us off and let's start talking about sepsis. Last week, JAMA's edition was entirely devoted to critical care and uh, proposed some new definitions for sepsis. So why don't you start by telling me why do we need a new definition for sepsis?
1: Okay, so I'm going to frame our conversation based on this paper, which assesses the various clinical criteria that have previously used to describe sepsis, um, and reflects some work that was done by an international task force that took it upon themselves to recently review and revise existing definitions. And your question, Amol, is a really good one: Why do we need a new definition? And I think that that. We have that inclination because it's become so. Um, it's become somewhat gestalty for many of us. Like we think we recognize sepsis as soon as we see it, and um, you know it, it's a concept that dates back even to Hippocrates' time before we even identified sepsis as relating to an infection. And um, at that time, people observed that rotting matter. Um, or decaying matter had this putrid smell and that's what they labeled sepsis it was the breakdown of organic matter to create something that was rotting and so obviously in the more modern era we have more sophisticated definitions than that and um the most recent time in which although at the end of the
0: day it kind of still just smells like sepsis right like your point
1: (laughs) absolutely it does You know, just to add an interesting pearl to that, when Hippocrates was first talking about sepsis, he actually thought of it as a duality, sepsis and pepsis. And pepsis was meant to be the counterbalancing force, which was the breakdown of organic matter to give life.
0: I feel more cultured for that introduction. Thank you. So, but tell me why now we need a new definition for
1: sepsis. So I think the reason is that there's been a lot of um, there are a lot of vague definitions that have been out in existence um, since 1991 they were revised in 2001 most of them were based almost exclusively on expert consensus they haven't really been data driven or based on systematic reviews so that was a major change in terms of process of why this definition is different but also in terms of content I think there's a recognition that because there's a lot of um, descriptors that are out there things like sepsis syndrome septicemia severe sepsis there's some redundancy and it's a bit ill-defined of you know are we talking about a continuum are some of these phrases meant to overlap and so essentially on the basis of this document all of those terms are now no longer in meant to be in in daily use and it's meant to simply be replaced by, sepsis being defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction that relates to an aggressive host response to a focal infection.
0: Okay. And so there is no severity of sepsis in the new definition?
1: No, it's, I mean, it's meant to indicate that the infection itself is quite severe and life threatening, but it's not being graded on a continuum of severity in and of itself.
0: Okay. So there's no such thing as like severe sepsis, Septic shock, it's just you either have sepsis or you don't have sepsis.
1: So there will still be a classification of septic shock, which was covered in a separate article in this JAMA series, but um, the, the continuum will essentially be local infection, sepsis, or septic shock.
0: Okay. All right. That's simple.
1: Hmm. It's,
0: it's a little vague still.
1: It is still vague, and I think that that's an, a limitation that the authors themselves um admit the fact that it's very heterogeneous, um, both in terms of how it's going to manifest in different patients who have different underlying demographics, comorbidities, as well as different pathogens, different types of organ dysfunction. So um, while this this uh, some of the clinical tools that we're going to talk about um, in subsequent minutes, they may have some greater clinical utility than previous definitions. Um, some of this is really that it's helped to create a, a more simple map of what sepsis means. And it's also probably going to be a, a more useful research tool.
0: The piece of the sepsi- the new sepsis definition that seems to me to be the one that's the most ripe for having some clearer definitions is the term organ dysfunction. So do they define what's meant by organ dysfunction?
1: So what they did in this, in this analysis was essentially they, they actually wanted to compare the various existing clinical tools that are meant to qualify, and quantify the extent of organ dysfunction. So there are several tools that are currently in existence. Um, So one is called the SOFA tool. It's an acronym for the Sequential Sepsis-Related Organ Failure Assessment. And it basically is a score of 0 to 24 that um, gives points related to dysfunction in the following systems, hematologic, hepatic, respiratory, neurologic, cardiac, and renal, with greater scores obviously corresponding to greater severity. And then we are probably most familiar with a second tool, which is SIRS, Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, which has a range of 0 to 4, giving points for tachypnea, tachycardia, white blood cell count, abnormalities in the extremes, and temperature changes in the extremes and then there's another um, tool called the LODs, the Logistic Organ Dysfunction Syst- System, which is very similar to the first one that we just spoke about, SOFA, which, um, again, it it gives increasing points for increasing severity of organ damage related to hematologic, hepatic, pulmonary, neurologic, cardiovascular, and renal systems. And their goal was essentially to see if um, how those scores actually fare in contrast to each other, and they also wanted to actually derive another tool which could potentially be a bit simpler and easier to implement at the bedside in patients with a suspected infection, which they ended up calling the QSOFA.
0: Give the one liner about this paper and the recommendation of this International Task Force of Sepsis. The recommendation is that we should use which of those
1: tools at the bedside? The bottom line is that in non-intensive care unit settings, the tool that they derived, which is the QSOFA tool, Um, which comprises hypotension less than 100, systolic blood pressure, tachypnea, respiratory greater than 22, and a GCS less than 13, signifying altered mental status. If you had two or more points on that tool, then you had an increased rate of, um, a predicted increased mortality. And that was the best tool in comparison to all other validated tools that exist and were assessed in this paper. And in an ICU setting, the SOFA tool is the one that came out on top.
0: Okay, perfect. Thanks, Rena. So why don't we get into actually talking about the paper. Tell me about uh, what these authors did to evaluate all these various scores.
1: Okay, great. So they undertook quite an ambitious study. So basically, they began by trying to create a cohort through which they could derive a new useful clinical tool at the bedside to assess patients for their risk of mortality with a suspected infection. So essentially patients who likely had sepsis. And so their inclusion criteria were people with suspected infection, age 18 or greater. And um, they ended up actually using health records and ended up deriving about 1.3 million health record encounters from January 1st, 2010 to December 31st, 2012 from 12 hospitals in southwestern Pennsylvania. And um, they split that cohort into their primary derivation cohort and then a validation cohort that would be used to test their new tool that they created and compare it against the other existing tools that it, that uh, include SIRS, SOFA, and LODs. And so the way that they defined um, suspected infection was from these electronic health records. They looked at all patients who had been administered antibiotics, either oral or intravenous, in combination with having cultures drawn from any site. And um, they put some parameters around that to ensure that there was some temporal relationship between those two events that made sense. So if antibiotics were given first, then cultures needed to be drawn within 24 hours. And if cultures were taken first, then antibiotics needed to be administered within 72 hours. And the first of these two events was considered to be the time of onset of the infection.
0: That seems like actually a very like intelligent case definition for, uh, for sepsis, like cultures and antibiotics. Presumably that's going to capture... Pretty much every patient who's at risk of, of having sepsis.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm trying then, to think
0: if it's going to include patients who are not at risk, but I don't think so. I think that's pretty good. Like, I think it makes sense.
1: I think it's essentially capturing the patients in whom you you are suspecting that to be the etiology of their presentation. And it may be overcalling people because certainly patients with like pancreatitis or burns might present with similar clinical features. Um, so, you know, a lot of times the, the, we, we all, we always have to treat it as suspected infection. And then it's only really learned retrospectively once you get culture results, whether or not you were right in that assessment.
0: Absolutely. But I guess that's the point at which you're trying to make the decision. So it, it makes sense to include all those patients in the scoring system.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: So tell me what the main outcome was that they were looking at.
1: So what they did is they, they were looking at, a primary outcome of in-hospital mortality and how well each of these prediction tools could discriminate um, between patients and their risk for mortality. And their secondary outcome of interest was either in-hospital mortality or an intensive care unit length of stay that exceeded three days. They essentially established a baseline risk of mortality for these patients that factored in demographic things like age, sex, race, as well as their underlying comorbidities. And then they determined how well each of these scoring tools predicted mortality on top of that baseline risk.
0: Perfect. And so uh, what did they find?
1: So just to give you an idea of the cohort, that their derivation cohort, their primary cohort, what those patients look like to make sure that we can all sort of determine whether that resonates with our own clinical practice. So so on average, these patients were about 61 years old. Roughly 50% of them were male roughly 75 percent of them were white and um, you know we should acknowledge that because most of these studies were done in high resource settings where there was the availability of intensive care units as well as um, quite advanced laboratory testing and patient monitoring, um, it really was restricted to quite specific areas of practice. Um, the majority of the patients had an onset of infection that occurred within 48 hours of their presentation. And their median time from the from the time that they presented to the onset of the infection was actually four hours. So these were quick presentations. The majority of them presented to the emergency department. Um, and actually, minimally, minimally, they were in the ICU.
0: And when you say to the onset of infection, you mean either the administration of antibiotics or the drawing of cultures?
1: That's exactly right. That's how they defined the onset of infection, the first of those two events to occur.
0: So tell me, what were their results in terms of mortality?
1: Okay, so within the ICU, they had... About 8,000 patients who had a suspected infection, and of those patients, 16% died. And in the non-ICU setting, they had over 66,000 patients who had suspected infection, in whom about 3% died.
0: Okay, so that just gives us a general sense of mortality rates. So now tell me about the scores. Uh, what You mentioned before, so QSOFA is the best score.
1: In the non-ICU setting.
0: Perfect. What did they find?
1: So they found that um, the QSOFA was the most predictive um, of mortality, and it was the simplest to apply. So in terms of predicting mortality, um, by way of reminder, QSOFA was hypotension, tachypnea, and altered mental status. So for patients who had a score of zero, that amounted to mortality that was predicted at about a few percent. Whereas for a score of one, mortality was predicted to about be about 8%. And for scores of two or greater, mortality was predicted to be about 20%. And that's, that tool was comparable in its performance characteristics to um, the SOFA, but it's obviously much easier to apply at the bedside. And um, in terms of its performance, it was also superior to the SERS criteria, which we've been probably using more commonly at the bedside until now.
0: Okay. So QSOFA is superior for the non-ICU patient population. And I think you alluded to this before. In the ICU patients, we're supposed to use the whole SOFA score, which uh, I guess is less simple, but in the age of uh, smartphone technology, that's really not an excuse not to use the score, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, yeah, so it was, again, found to be superior to surge. Um, not different from the LODs, but it's a little bit easier to implement than the LODs. So the the recommendation of these authors was to use the SOFA in an ICU setting.
0: Perfect. Okay, thanks so much, Rena. So do you want to just summarize? That was a lot to digest. Um, but do you want to just give us the the major takeaway points from this uh, seemingly quite important uh position statement and set of recommendations and how this is going to change your practice?
1: Sure. So um, I think the bottom line of this paper is that we can do away with um, some of the redundant terminology that's existed in the past around severe sepsis, septicemia, um, and really just focus our um, conceptualization of this very complicated syndrome to be local infection or sepsis, which is end organ target uh, life-threatening end-organ damage related to a host response to a supposed infection. And um, when we're trying to estimate the possibility of sepsis with our patients, in a non-ICU setting, we can use a very simple uh, clinical prediction tool that incorporates respirate, blood pressure, and mental status, the Q sofa. And I think that's probably relevant to most of our general practice. In the ICU, um, it's really utilization of the SOFA tool, which probably requires MD calc or a smartphone, as you suggested. I think I'll just highlight a few limitations of this work. So we already talked about the fact that it's been conducted in mostly high-resource settings, so it may not be generalizable. And then the last thing is, is that um, all these tools, including the QSOFA, sort of presume the presence of an infection in the first place. So they're not really things that we can use to help us decide whether we should be considering infection. There are sort of tools that we kick into action when we've thought of infection as a possibility, and we want to know what's the chance that this is going to be an infection that spirals out of control into sepsis and increases this patient's risk of mortality.
0: Okay, thanks, Rina, for this summary of obviously a super important clinical topic. Thank you. So let's change gears and zoom out a little bit. Um, And I want to talk sort of from a big picture, I want to talk about happiness and mortality. So two uh, very large concepts.
1: So this is a very existential paper.
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, So it gets at the heart of what it means to be alive. Uh, So quite literally. So uh, this is a paper that was published in The Lancet and uh, examined the question of whether happiness is directly related to mortality.
1: Okay, well that is very intriguing.
0: Yeah, and so I would kind of wonder if I should even give a bottom line or if we should dive in and I should just keep everyone in in suspense. So maybe before I even uh give the results, what what is your instinct? Like do you think that happiness is associated with mortality? Do happier people live longer?
1: Well, um that's a tough question to answer because I want to believe it's well, no, I don't know. <laughs> mole. that's such a controversial question.
0: Well, that's the whole point. Okay, so let's try to bring some evidence to the controversy. Okay, so here's what we know. We know that happiness and health are highly correlated, right? That's not a surprise. In the sense that, um, you know, healthier people tend to report that they are happier and vice versa.
1: That makes sense.
0: Um, and there are also studies that show that happiness is associated with reduced mortality, uh, and particularly in the realm of cardiovascular disease. Now, the question is is that just because happiness is correlated with health, um, or is happiness itself directly related to mortality?
1: So, this paper is striving to answer that question.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, just some basic epidemiologic principles the relationship between happiness and mortality could be as a result of. Uh, confounding factors. So for example, let's take wealth, for example. It's possible that wealthier people are happier and wealthier people are healthier or less likely to die, right? And so then the relationship between happiness and mortality is uh, just an association. It's not actually causal, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then of course there's, so so that's one possibility. And the other possibility is that of reverse causality, which is that people who are healthier and people who are less likely to die are happier. And, uh, and it's really hard to tease these things apart.
1: So when you made the statement that it's previously been demonstrated that people who are healthier tend to be happier and people who are happier tend to be healthier, are there, is that on the basis of what type of study in the past?
0: Yeah, so that's all on the basis of um, You know, observational analyses that are maybe less well equipped to tease out whether there are confounding effects or reverse causal effects. Obviously, uh, you know, you can't do a randomized trial in this area, like, you can't randomize people to happiness. Um, And so we're left with using large uh, epidemiologic data, but the quality of the data and Uh, you know, the number of measurements you have, et cetera, really affect your ability to draw inferences.
1: So is that how this study stands apart then? It's a much larger study?
0: Exactly. So the name of this study will explain partially why it's so powerful. This is called the Million Women Study. Um, And so this was a study in uh, England and Scotland that recruited 1.3 million women through breast cancer screening programs between 1996 and 2001. What happened was that they recruited all these women. At recruitment, they uh, responded to a questionnaire about a number of self-reported health factors, lifestyle factors, including uh, happiness and socioeconomic status. And then they were mailed out questionnaires every three to five years. And then the uh, scientists or the researchers used electronic linked health records to be able to follow these women for mortality. And so this allowed them to track mortality and their primary outcome in this study was 10 year mortality.
1: And so were they directly asked, are you happy? Or how did they exactly go about eliciting that information in terms of the exposure?
0: Yeah, that's right. So actually at recruitment, they were asked the question, how often do you feel happy? Okay. And they were categorized into three groups based on their responses. Uh, There was one group that was unhappy. One group was categorized as usually unhappy. And one group that was categorized as happy most of the time. And so uh, here's what they found. So they found that of the 1.3 million women enrolled in the study, 845,000 plus uh, women responded to the question about happiness. And of those... 17% 17% were unhappy, 44% were usually happy, and 39% were happy most of the time.
1: <sighs> I don't know what I was expecting. I
0: Right, yeah. As you
1: were speaking, I was asking myself what I thought the baseline rates of happiness would be.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was asking myself the same thing as I was reading it. I guess I'm I guess it's it's kind of nice that the unhappiness is relatively low. Um I probably would have guessed that they would be higher based on like uh, maybe just like biases from what I see in the news, and there's a lot of negativity, you know, in the media. Yeah, and stuff. that's
1: right. I agree. I was expecting it to be higher as well.
0: So it's it's encouraging that actually, you know, but you know, if I think about people I know, people aren't generally like so unhappy walking around day to day. So um, it's a weird sort of anyway. So 17% unhappy. That's the that's the data. So. One of the things that they did that I thought was really fascinating was one year later, they did, they took a random sample of those women and had them complete the happiness question again. Um, and so about 10,000 women a ra- randomly sampled, completed uh, the happiness question one year later to test. Um, sort of the durability of those responses. Mm, or the, that's interesting. The repeated reliability of the responses. And what they found was that um, there was very little crossover, particularly between the extreme categories. So the people who were unhappy at baseline, only 5% of them switched into the most happy category at one year. And those who were happy at baseline, only 2% switched into the unhappy category. So I thought that was interesting because it suggests that your happiness is sort of a durable almost like a a personality trait or somewhat like, you know, independent of perhaps some contextual factors that you might expect to change in a one year time.
1: I guess that's a surprising finding for me too, because I would have expected it to be much more contextual and shifting over time. Like even just in terms of your mood at the moment that you're filling out the survey and how it's influenced by your circumstances in that moment.
0: Yeah. Although I guess the question is how often do you feel happy? And so the response isn't like sort of, are you happy at that moment? Okay. Um, Okay, so let's, before we dive into the relationship between happiness and mortality, there's some interesting stuff just about what lifestyle factors are correlated with happiness.
1: So, enlighten us.
0: Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna we're gonna play a game. So, I'm gonna say a, a lifestyle factor, and you're gonna tell me if you think it's associated with more or less happiness, okay? Okay. Okay, so age, as you get older, are you more happy or less happy?
1: I think it's going to be a bell curve.
0: Uh, interesting question. Uh, interesting uh, thought. It's actually so as you get older, uh, certainly. So they looked at people over the age of sixty. Um, uh, they were more happy than younger people.
1: That's great um, to hear. Things to look forward <laughs> yeah, to.
0: More, more hopeful for what's <laughs> what's to come. Um, and I should say that the median age in this study was fifty nine years. Okay. Okay. Um. Uh. What about uh socioeconomic status? So uh, wealth.
1: I think it. Will correlate with happiness.
0: Yeah, so um, people who are less deprived are more
1: happy. Okay.
0: Okay. What about education?
1: Hmm. I think it will also correlate with happiness.
0: So did I think so, but that is not true. So in fact, the least educated people reported the most happiness.
1: Wow. Does
0: that make you question your life decisions?
1: It does. Considering that we
0: spent you know decades in (laughs) higher education. Existential crisis. Um, okay, exercise.
1: I think it correlates with happiness.
0: Yeah, so people who do the most exercise reported the highest uh, happiness. Uh, what about uh, marital status and status of having children?
1: I hope those correlate with happiness.
0: They do. So uh, uh, if you are in a partnered relationship and uh, if you have children, that those people reported the highest levels of happiness. Um, participation in religious groups reported the highest level of happiness, uh, as opposed to not participating in religious groups. Um, and then sleep. Okay. So what do you think about the relationship between sleep and happiness?
1: I think it's strongly correlated.
0: <laughs> so it's interesting. It's actually a, 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 a shaped curve. Um, so less sleep, um, at a very low level, uh, is associated with less happiness and then uh, actually the optimal level of sleep for women was about eight hours of sleep a night.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then women who slept more than that reported uh, less happiness.
1: Interesting.
0: All of these things are correlations and not causations, um, but I just thought they were interesting to talk about. You know, For example, like sleep, you could imagine that people who uh, have a low mood and are unhappy maybe sleep longer or something, yeah, right? Like right. it's hard to Good know point. which way that goes. Um, So so anyway, those are their observations around sort of lifestyle factors associated with happiness. Okay, so let's talk about mortality. So the mortality rate in this population over 10 years was approximately 4%. Um, And here's what they found. So they found that when they just looked at the relationship between happiness and mortality, and the only thing they adjusted for was age, they found that unhappy women had a 30% increased risk of mortality. Okay, so this is consistent with the other findings, which is that there's an association between happiness and mortality.
1: Mm-hmm. So that is believable. That's a stunning number.
0: Uh, relative, so I should so relative, right? So it's a relative increase of thirty yeah. Yeah. percent um, uh, around a baseline of four percent, right? So in an absolute terms, we're talking about you know less than one percent.
1: You're right in absolute terms, but it's still a much um, more, it's a much larger relative risk than I would have expected even then, actually.
0: Well, okay. So now we get into looking at this a little bit more rigorously. So what what they found is that when you adjust for lifestyle and health factors, mm-hmm. the effect is completely eliminated. Okay. So in fact, there's no direct relationship between happiness and mortality.
1: And so did they adjust for other health factors outside of the lifestyle factors that you just mentioned?
0: Yeah. So, so the, the single biggest adjustment factor was self-rated health. So uh, self-rated health, uh, if you include that in a model with happiness and mortality, uh, the effect of happiness on mortality is completely eliminated. Basically suggesting that the relationship between happiness and Uh, mortality is mediated through your general health status. Mm -hmm. Which Um, does make
1: sense. But that was self-reported health. So were there any objective measures of the patient's health status?
0: So they had self-reported comorbidities. um, And one of the interesting things that they did to look at uh, this problem of reverse causality, they actually excluded women who had serious chronic illnesses. So, you know, cardiovascular disease cancer, etc. So they excluded all of those women. And when they included just women who didn't have serious illness at baseline, what they found was, uh, again, that there was no relationship between uh, happiness and mortality.
1: So we're not all going to be racing to create gross national happiness indexes in (laughs) our countries?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what we see in this paper is that happiness is highly correlated with health. But this is this answers a, an interesting um, you know and and relatively important sort of population health question about the relationship between happiness and mortality
1: mm-hmm it's very interesting and thought-provoking
0: perfect thanks Rena so uh, interesting uh, high-level conversation why don't we change gears from happiness and move on to goodness and talk about good stuff so tell me something that caught your eye from the world of uh, medicine this week
1: Sure. So I wanted to share an editorial that appeared in the Toronto Star on March 1st called Let's Get the Basic Income Experiment Right. And it's basically um, writing about how uh, there's a pilot project being proposed within Ontario's provincial budget to fund um, a basic income project to evaluate whether that can have a benefit on a whole host of outcomes, um, one of which will hopefully be health outcomes. So it's an interesting read.
0: Fascinating. Where are they doing the experiment?
1: So it's still being defined, but um, what the writers of this editorial are saying is that it would need to include inner city, rural, and suburban populations to take into account all the diversity within the province.
0: Okay, fascinating recommendation. How about yours? So my good stuff is a paper that was recently published in Science Translational Medicine. So we're digging into the cutting edge of uh, novel technologies here. It was a study that showed that scanning ultrasound waves can reduce amyloid plaques and restore memory in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. Interesting. Yeah. So, As you uh, probably are aware, amyloid protein deposition in the brain is felt to be part of the pathological mechanism uh, in Alzheimer's disease. And so what these scientists did is they used a scanning ultrasound machine, which has the effect of apparently gently opening up the blood-brain barrier and activating microglial cells, which are like the brain's macrophages. So uh, cells that basically remove waste. And so what they found is that these cells become activated when you Uh, subject these mice to scanning ultrasound, and that they ingest all the amyloid plaques. And so they take up all the plaque. And so they found that plaque burden was reduced in the treated mice compared with sham treated controls. 75% of the treated mice cleared the plaques altogether and they found that the treated mice displayed improved performance on several memory tasks.
1: Wow, that's really interesting and promising.
0: Yeah, so it's it um, brings a sort of new non-invasive interesting methodology that obviously, you know, requires a, a lot, lot more of further testing. study before it, you know, comes to humans, but I thought it was an interesting idea.
1: Definitely. Thanks for sharing.
0: Okay, Rena, thanks uh, Thanks for chatting with me today about all sorts of things from happiness to sepsis and pepsis. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, let's do it again soon. For sure. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.